This is the fifth Sunday of Easter, and we continue in the readings uh, in this cycle, third year cycle of, of readings from the book of Acts, from the revelation of St. John the Divine, and from the gospel according to St. John. And we are reading some of the most important readings as we move now uh, to the Ascension and to the Feast of Pentecost. So in my sermon, I'm going to preach on all three of these readings, but I just want to remind us that what we've had happen since last week is a movement away from hearing about resurrection appearances of Jesus to now how the early church, the New Testament church, began to appropriate the resurrection message and how they decided to say, uh, how they believe that it, they should be God's people in the world. And the issues that are talked about in the readings today are very important to the early church and have set the tone for how Christians might behave. And they have done a good job sometimes and not such a good job other times. But that's to be expected because this is tough. The three great themes today are God's inclusiveness, a new vision for the world, and the Savior's commandment to love one another. So in the reading from the book of Acts, uh, we follow the, today Peter uh, converting Cornelius the centurion, a Gentile. And as the result of this and his experience of the Spirit of God, here's what happened. Cornelius and all the people that are talked about today who uh, now have received the Holy Spirit have received things out of order. So it would drive the liturgist nuts these days. They got the Holy Spirit first, and, the, and they haven't been baptized with water yet. And usually it's the other way around. But in the course of this, Peter sees something occur that is extremely important to him in terms of his reflection on who's in and who's out. And to reinforce that, he has a vision or a dream or some sort of a trance that he enters into in his prayer where he sees a blanket and on it are all kinds of animals that are not uh, clean. They are not, cannot be eaten by a pious Jew who is observing the dietary laws. And so God says to him in the dream, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter said, I can't do this, Lord. I will not, what God, I will not do it. I have never, ever broken those laws, and I can't eat these animals. And God says to him, what God has made clean, you must not profane. And as a result of this, he now is jumped by the apostles who rebuke him for eating with the Gentiles and more, more to the point for taking it upon himself to interpret uh, how he's going to now relate to the Gentiles and what he has now deemed to be less important than the movement of the Spirit of God in the life of the church. And they're not pleased about this. 
He concludes in his defense, I'm going to talk about it a little bit more in a moment, God has given to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to eternal life. Now, for Christians in every age, there's always a conversation about who's in and who's out. And this is the classic text for affirming the possibility and the actuality that the Spirit of God works through us and that our lived experience has something to do with how we begin to see how we think about things that formerly we thought were absolutely unthinkable. I've said this in, in sermons recently. The word in Greek for Gentile is ethne. So there's a word that sounds familiar to us, doesn't it, to some degree, ethnic. But it means, in translation, those people. Those people. And so Peter sat down with those people and ate with them. He observed what is called formally table fellowship. This was absolutely unthinkable to a pious Jew. And Peter does this. His behavior is very uneven over time. In Galatians, Paul describes a situation where Peter came to visit him and he sat down and ate with Paul and the Gentiles and did not observe the dietary laws or the purity laws. And when the Jerusalem contingent came from Jerusalem and sat, Peter withdrew from the table fellowship with the Gentiles and was publicly rebuked by Paul as a hypocrite. So when we read this text, we have to think about the fact that, you know, over time, we're a little bit uneven. If we, even if we think these are good and pious principles, uh, we, we sometimes get cold feet. And Peter is an example of that. But what this text is really about is the importance of God's inclusion, God's radical inclusion, and the movement of the Spirit of God in the hearts of all faithful people to do things that they would have thought unthinkable before. See, here's the deal. This is what we've got to think about all the time. How is it that if you do this, you break a law or a rule that you believe God told you you had to keep? And when you decide that that is not a rule that you need to keep, how do you explain it? And what Peter saw was this. Peter saw that the experience of the people who had received the Holy Spirit of God, who were Gentiles, was identical to his own experience when he received the Spirit of God. So that has something to do with what is important about a lot of issues uh, in the last 35 or 40 years in the Episcopal Church. I have to say this to you. The decision of the early Christian church to preach the gospel to the Gentiles 
was such a momentous thing that it makes the ordination of women to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church, the uh, full inclusion of gay and lesbian people into our common life together and the blessing of their relationships look like amateur night. It's amateur night. Right? If you think that looms large, you should think about what it was like to preach the gospel to those people. Now, what we're talking about when we see and understand in our own time the movement of the Spirit of God, we're speaking about something that is known as the pastoral experience of the church. It's the listening to the stories and saying when we hear these stories, it acts on our spirit. Remember when we speak about the spiritual life, the spiritual life is the whole of life, body, soul, mind, spirit given to God in love. So it isn't glib to say when you get out of bed in the morning, ask yourself, what spirits are you in? That is the spiritual life. So it is a complex of your emotional, spiritual, and mental states. And when we listen to the stories of people, those people, whoever they may be, we begin to see that they, these stories have the capacity to soften our hearts, not just out of sentimentality. I heard a great sermon when I was in seminary once where the preacher said sentimentality is almost always characterized by a low threshold of pain. That's not what we're talking about, not all. We're talking about a more vigorous understanding of, you know, I just never heard, I listened, but I never heard before. And Peter heard God say to him, do not, do not call unclean what, what I have called clean. Being, beings made in God's image and likeness. So this is a text that we read at liturgies that have a lot to do with issues of justice and equity because it reminds us of the presence of the Spirit of God in the life of the church in every age. Now the location for where this is lived and acted out is given to us in the reading from the revelation of St. John the Divine. And remember the predicates that I have applied to the interpretation of this text in the New Testament is the view that all of the things that are described in mystical or symbolic ter predictive terms are about things that have already happened to the community out of which this writing emerged. And so there is a now but not yet aspect to what it is. If you want to amaze your friends, if you ever get into a conversation about this, what is being talked about here in theology is something called realized eschatology. Something that has already happened, but we now must live into that reality. So what is the reality that's being described in the book of Revelation today? It is that the writer has seen a new heaven and a new earth. 
the transformation of the world, not somewhere else, but here. And once again, we're getting a lot of this in the readings uh, for this cycle. We have embedded in the reading a liturgical, a piece of a liturgical hymn. See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. So this new heaven and new earth is not somewhere else. God is here with us. When you read the creation stories in the book of Genesis, the first week of creation, all of that in the original language is temple language. And it's really a story about the world being the temple where God dwells with the creation that he made and called good. So we're all here together, not somewhere else. What does that mean? It means that you and I have an obligation and a great privilege to be part of God's plan for the cosmos by helping to build the new heaven and the new earth, to be part of the new heaven and the new earth, and to decide that we do that as we live and come to a deeper and fuller understanding of God's purposes for this new heaven and this new earth. You know, when you stop to think about it, years ago, there was a secretary of the interior. I can't remember which president's cabinet. I think his name was James Watts. He was a Pentecostal Christian. And in an interview one time, he said, you know, I really have to tell you, because of my own religious commitments, worrying about whether the forests are going to survive or whether there's going to be enough oil or energy really doesn't matter to me because, after all, this is not where I'm going to be. Why should I worry about it if all I'm going to do is wait to get to heaven? So what's here doesn't matter. You see, if you accept that particular point of view, there's no reason to labor in this society for justice and equity in any area. Don't, don't need to. Just make sure you've dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's. If you accept Jesus, you're going to be saved, and the only thing you need to really worry about is to avoid whatever landmines you might step on spiritually until you die and go to God. Well, as Father Hunt used to say to us, you can believe that if you want to. This is about a new heaven and a new earth. It isn't some just mystical description of somewhere else. It's that we're in it. Realized eschatology. We're here. And somehow we have a responsibility. God needs us for this work. You know? Maybe that's one of the answers to what I joke about. What are you going to talk about today? Why there is something instead of nothing. God needs each of us and made us for a purpose and loves us unconditionally. So the reading from Revelation is about that. And now 
what we read in the gospel has something to do with the glue that holds together what, our, what we do as we live into our vocation as Christian people. So what we read about in the gospel today is one of the passages that when I was first becoming a student of this, I found almost incomprehensible. I'm going to try to explain it, but it may still be incomprehensible to you. But when we get into this I and you and you and me and glorify you and go for, I was get, I say, you know, I'm getting about 10% of this. So Reginald Fuller came to my rescue. He was one of the great Anglican biblical scholars in the 20th century. And in a commentary on this passage, he said, many biblical scholars today believe that embedded in this gospel reading is another hymn. But the way we read it in the text, it's just a run-on sentence, you know. It's not like a poetry or a hymn. So he put it in, a, in that form. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and in him God is glorified. If God had been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. This reading comes at the Last Supper. So what Jesus is talking about in terms of the glorification is immediate for the disciples and the apostles. After the Last Supper, he is going to be tried, crucified, dies, rises again from the dead, and ascends into heaven in the tradition of Christian people. And so by virtue of this, we in John's Gospel reflect on God's glory. So by extension, if you're trying to think, what might it mean to think about that? It means that you sort of bask in the glory of God. That as the result of that, you are now capable of being somebody who is uh, obedient to your vocation to be one of God's people in the world. But what Jesus says at the end, rather than explain in any great detail, was, I give you a new commandment that you must love one another as I have loved you. And he's speaking very specifically in this text about the Christian church, all those people in the upper room. By extension, we learn now to love others. But participating in the Holy Eucharist is the means by which, on a weekly basis, we now are strengthened to love better in the world. My mentor, Murray Hammond, who is the rector of uh, the parish in Mill Valley, said to me once, the old cliché about, you know, you don't have to like everybody, but you have to love everybody, is true. And if you believe that, David, God will give you the graces to do that. To love the people you serve. And about seven or eight years ago, one of my colleagues, who was in my colleague group, a, a priest in this diocese, uh, was speaking in our conversation on that particular day of um, difficult people in, the, in your parishes. 
And this is very hard because we so seldom run into difficult people in the parishes that it is, it is a, a, a difficult thing to, to really focus on, right? So she said, you know, one day I was sitting with thinking about one particular person, not naming names, but merely saying that there was some, some conflict. She saw this person sitting in the parish hall at a meeting and uh, was sitting with their face and their body in repose. Do you know what I mean? Relaxed. And they were sitting so that the light that came in from the window uh, shone on them in a, at a particular angle. And she said, you know, I thought when I looked at that person that that's the way God must see them all the time. That's the way God must see them all the time. I thought it was wonderful to hear that. And it was a great spiritual insight. So the Savior says, we must love one another as I have loved you, a new commandment. In external terms, in maybe uh, for, for you just, oh well, it's uh, sort of a action. The participation in the Eucharist is the means by which Christians do this on a regular basis. The way in which they practice the love of God. And there's a process involved in that, you know. The, the, the strength and the depth of your ability to love other people is a, is a pilgrimage. It's part of the spiritual journey where that now becomes reflexive and much, much easier. Remember in the gospel two weeks ago, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Agapeo, unconditionally. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Phileo, like a brother. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Agapeo. And Peter says, yes, you know that I love you. Phileo, like a brother. So finally, the third time, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Phileo. And he says, upset that Jesus asked him again. He said, yes, you know that I love you, Phileo. I think that's a, a, a description of the processes that each one of us go through with regard to how we love one another and how we want or maybe not love God that way. And so what Jesus is identifying is, there's going to be a time very soon when I'm going to go away from you. So we're going to be starting to deal with the separation anxiety. And we're also going to understand that when I'm not here anymore physically, that what I have told you to do, you can continue to do and feel its power and strength and the presence, which is the Spirit of God. So this week, give thanks for God's inclusive love, acceptance, and forgiveness and for the continuous work of the Holy Spirit of God to make us see the true nature of inclusiveness in every age. Give thanks to God for being cooperators with God's purpose, purposes in the cosmos to build a new heaven and a new earth. And finally, give thanks for the presence of the glorified Christ in the Eucharist 
and for the strength it provides us to be God's people in the world. Amen.